Welcome to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we inspire collaborative thinking, improved outcomes, and business success with today's most successful and inspiring healthcare leaders and influencers. And now your host, Saul Marquez. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have the privilege of hosting Dr. Shafi Ahmed. He's a professor in, and a multi-award-winning surgeon, teacher, futurist, innovator, and entrepreneur. He's a three-time TEDx and international keynote speaker and is a faculty at Singularity University. He's chairman and co-founder of the Global Innovation and New Technologies Conference in London and chair of the WEBIT Health Bulgaria. He's a laparoscopic colorectal cancer surgeon at the Royal London and St. Bartholomew's Hospitals and has been awarded the accolade of the most watched surgeon in human history. As a dedicated trainer, educator, and associate dean of Bart's Medical School, he was awarded the Silver Scalpel Award in 2015 as the best national trainer in surgery. He is currently serving as an elected member of council of the Royal College of Surgeons of England, where he is the director of the International Surgical Training Program. He's an honorary visiting professor at the University of Bradford, where he delivered the Cantor Lecture of Technology in 2017 and the public lecture to open the Digital Health Enterprise Zone. He has been awarded honorary doctorates and very privileged to have him on the podcast today. And the topic here is expanding and challenging your thinking. Shafi, thankful that you're here with us. Uh, It's a pleasure. Thanks for hosting me on your podcast. I'm looking forward to this conversation. So Shafi, tell me, what is it that got you into healthcare? So I guess uh, when I was growing up, I was very interested in science and mathematics. And I guess the natural evolution for me was to think about career in healthcare. You know, we had illness in the family. Uh, I was thinking about leaving impact. I was thinking about which career would give me the most reward back in return. And healthcare and medicine in particular appealed to me on a number of levels. So I think it was my inquisitive nature of science and also the fact that you're helping humanity in some description. I think all of those things fell in place as I was thinking about which career to pursue at the time of, of, of high school studies. So, and I'm pretty pleased I made the right choice. Well, I definitely would say you did as well. The the impact that that you've made, and and really the first time that I that I had the opportunity to to see you speak was when I attended a, a Singularity University, the the uh, Exponential Medicine series in San Diego. Floored by the work that that's being done by that organization, and and your involvement there is is of no surprise. Would love to hear what you believe, Doctor Ahmed is a topic that should be front and center in health leaders' agendas today? So I think we have a number of issues to deal with. And the most interesting problem that I've come across, which I think needs to be solved, is this whole aspect of digital transformation, but to really impact most people on the planet. And what I mean by that is that we have in kind of, we have a lot of innovators, we have a lot of inventors, and we highlight those at a high level because they are at the forefront of change. But my question really is, if we're going to evolve healthcare, using technology and different interfaces to make healthcare more equitable, accessible, and affordable, how do we change the 99% of people who need to be on that journey with us? That includes patients, including most clinicians, students, trainees, 
people in other allied healthcare professionals. How do we change their mindset? How do we move them into this different world we live in? And in the next 10, 20 years, of course, healthcare will be completely different to what it is today. But yet we're not ready. And we haven't redesigned the curriculum, the agenda, the kind of broader piece of education to ensure that we create a workforce that's relevant for tomorrow, today. So that's kind of, I think, the key message for any healthcare leader, thinking how does the organisation change, evolve, digitally transform itself, but more importantly, take that workforce on that journey with them. Otherwise, it becomes a hollow victory. You know, that's such a great call out, Shafi. And I feel like it's almost a natural tendency for, for us to want to be consistent and, and not really change much in healthcare. And, and so what types of things do you, do you suggest folks think about as they, as they prepare to change tomorrow's workforce today? Okay, so let's, uh, let's take an example at the very beginning. Let's take medicine as a career. Now, I've been through conventional medical school training in London. I, I trained at King's College Hospital. And if you look at medical schools at the moment, they haven't really evolved or redesigned their curriculum for today's modern uh, doctor. So if you're going to create what I call the digital doctor, the person who's going to be in the workplace in the next 10, 20, 30 years, have we done enough to redesign the curriculum around them? We have a new generation of people now. They're younger, they're agile, they're mobile, they want to travel, they're digitally native, if you like. They're very, they understand different things about the world that we live in. It's more connected. But yet the curriculum itself, if you look at most medical schools, hasn't evolved. It's still based around teaching people basic sciences and clinical sciences. And what you're doing, I fear, is you're taking uh, human beings who have a huge, broad set of um, skill sets and you bring them to medical school. What you're producing is a one-dimensional human being Mm -hmm. because you haven't evolved and changed that curriculum for many years. And one of those I have at medical school, I'm the associate dean at Bart's Medical School. I have been for a long time. I've been thinking, how do we challenge this kind of dogma and tradition, both in education and healthcare practice? So I think that's the first thing you've got to think about. How do you challenge what's out there already? How do you change your perception? And how do you have the initiative to change it for the better? So that's one example where I think medical school curriculum is not fit for purpose. It's still and- five or six years too long. And you're thinking, does it take five years, for example, to train mm-hmm. a doctor? I don't think it does. I think we can redesign healthcare and train people in a short amount of time. So wow. we'll explore that later. So I think that is the fundamental question we have to ask ourselves. Why are we stuck with dogma and tradition? Why are we challenging everything around us and making it better? If we need more doctors, need more to improve the healthcare of, of the nation, we've got to think differently. You know what? That is a, a very fascinating idea. And is healthcare training too long for physicians? And Wow. That's a, so something that I'll leave to the listeners to think about as well. Uh, but as you guys can hear, Dr. Ahmed is really known for, for pushing the boundaries and making us shift our thinking in the things that we believe should be and why. Why are they this way? So uh, as we discuss the length of, of education or different things that are new, one of the things that, that uh, I'd like to highlight Shafi uh, does an extraordinary job of showcasing the things that he, he learns and uh, shares them right away. I feel like as a mark of a true leader, you're very involved with virtual reality, augmented reality in the way that you approach your practice. I'd love to hear how you've made a difference with some of those technologies. 
Yes, thanks for that. So it's very kind of you to say that. Yeah, so one of my kind of roles is to push that boundary, bring late technology, not just about thinking about it, describing it and talking about it, it's implementing it. And that's the hard part of it, because in healthcare, how do you implement technology today at pace? And so the first thing I'd say about all of that is that if you think about the cycle of adoption in clinical practice, it requires innovators, of course it does. It then requires this kind of period of validation before you translate. It's the old-fashioned way of doing a clinical trial. And mm-hmm. a randomized clinical trial is the gold standard still to this day. But I would argue that's archaic. It's too slow, too cumbersome. And the way the technology is accelerating so rapidly, we have to redesign the whole clinical implementation to be much more rapid. So my thoughts around this is that we have to implement at pace. So innovation and validation and translation almost need to work in unison, together, at pace. Redesigning the way we adopt change, redesigning clinical trials maybe, and accepting risk and mitigating as far as possible to do as fast as possible. So that's kind of my background of what I do. So things I have done, for example. So I think we need to challenge the way we educate people and the way we practice clinically. Let's take education first. At the moment, we have come from a long way in the back from you know, the books and paper onto e-learning platforms. Now, for me, both virtual reality, augmented reality, or extended reality as an umbrella term are new platforms that we can use to facilitate training and education. At the same time, these facilities will allow us to practice clinically better. Because mm-hmm. one thing is about the doctor-patient relationship that we have at the moment. I've been saying that for a long while. It's too expensive. Face-to-face contact, said to you and I saw whatever, it's just too expensive. We can't afford it no longer. We have to think about how do we access a healthcare professionals? Is it going to be virtually? Is it going to be AI interfaces? Is it going to be avatars? Is it going to be a different way using telemedicine or hollow presence systems? And I've experimented all of those using my own body to hollow port. I've done virtual reality operations remotely, for example, telemedicine operations, so I can really scale up the way we teach people on a global scale. But it's a show that we can use technology today by thinking differently, implementing fast, and then mitigate risk as far as possible. And so my role I see in the kind of forefront of healthcare innovation is that translation. Yes, we have ideas, but how do you innovate in a big hospital like mine, uh, mm-hmm. Bart's Health, the biggest trust in the UK, how, and with the NHS system that can be archaic at times, how do you persuade that organisation to be more nimble and agile and to understand and to move and help and support your innovation? And that's why I think I've kind of tried supporting as far as possible. And I think people have enjoyed those experiences that I've, I've come across and showcasing how we can use that technology today. Without a doubt. And it's, it's, uh, your approach is brilliant. And, and I feel like a lot, of, a lot of physician leaders out there you know, struggle to, to get their voice heard nowadays in larger and larger systems, right? You got mergers and acquisitions happening left and right. And the physician voice tends to get lost. What message would you give to the physicians listening today, uh, Dr. Ahmed, on, on how they could be heard? Yes, thanks for that. So I think that physicians themselves are at the forefront of clinical practice. They are the leaders. If you look at actually a lot of reports, you realize the hospitals that are run by clinicians or at least supported in leadership by clinicians do better because they understand the clinical side of things, they begin to understand the business side of things, and they add that value. So I think that's the first to understand that actually uh, clinicians can make good leaders, both in clinical practice and in kind of the business side of an organization, as well as leadership. Second thing is to empower yourself. 
So I, I think human beings are interesting, and doctors are, are fascinating, of course, because we all have this ambition to keep improving. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we find every five or 10 years, of course, it's almost as though we need to reinvigorate ourselves, do something different. And what we're not being able to do is actually challenge our minds every five or 10 years. We've become stale in our clinical practice. We do endless things over and over again by repetition because it's safe, it's comfortable, you know, you make a reasonable income, you do your work, you a good outcome, et cetera. But actually what we need to be doing with individuals at five or 10 years, actually, okay, let's sit you down. What's next for you? How do we develop you as a person? How do we develop your role? How do you become a better leader? What can we do to participate, help support that? And the hospital itself, the leadership, should be going to every clinician and say, okay, the five, 10 years, let's sit down with you and think about your next five, 10 years. Mm. I think you get more out of people that way. At the moment, we're not because we're driven just by a business-oriented approach. And, and basically, it's going to be monetization at the end, uh, a profit, et cetera. But I think if you reinvest in people, you'll get more out of them. And perhaps you'll make the healthcare much better uh, for a lot of people and also retain their interest, their passion for much longer. We're getting burnout. We're seeing people leave the profession. We're seeing youngsters at the moment who don't want to actually go ahead and do medicine despite going through a medical school career. Uh, in the UK, for example, we see 30% of doctors leaving the profession. So you have to ask yourself why that is. It's no longer to say it's just because of the way it is. It's okay, how do we manage it better? And this is going back to my fundamental question but how do you get the best out of individuals and organization? That means empowering them, going back on a regular basis to facilitate and support their learning and the development as a human being, but also as leaders in the environment, and give them that challenge and inspiration to do better. So I think that is really part of key part of any organization to sustain its ability to invest in its, in its, in its uh, potential and its workforce. I uh, uh, like that. It, it's a, uh, it's such a great thing, and you hear that if you know, watch them. What's that saying? Uh, help them grow or watch them go. Right. Of course, yes. <laughs> and and so as we think about all the things that you've done in your career, Shafi, you've been at the forefront of of surgery, technology, reform, and and education. What would you say is a setback that you had? A mistake? that you learn most from that you could share with today's uh, listeners? Sure. I think you know, there's many things uh, we make mistakes of, of course, in clinical practice. You, you make mistakes. Uh, you learn from your outcomes. And as a surgeon, of course, and that's what defines me, I'm a surgeon first and foremost. On top of that, I do the entrepreneurship, innovate and educate. But ultimately, I'm a surgeon first and foremost. So when we look at pathways, we made mistakes in the past with clinical outcomes, uh, with operations going wrong, for example, it's a real learning curve for all of us. One thing about surgery is that it's a very humbling experience. And I find that when you have a complication that's unexpected or you haven't really thought about properly or it's been just an error and it happens, of course, in all our lives, you go back and reflect and say, okay, well, how can I change that? How can I impact and make it a better outcome? That's the first thing. The other thing, of course, in my own business side of things is making mistakes with startups. You have a lot of startups you set up and businesses and you realize there's a whole process around that. And when you fail, and of course you fail, you fail big, and actually you learn a lot from those failures. But okay, what is it that we didn't design properly? Was the question answered? What was the solution? Was it fit for purpose? Did we have the right team around us to make it work? Do we have the skill sets? Do we have the right motivation? Was it about the monetization of a product, for example? And so I reflect a lot on those things. Okay, well, actually, I've learned a lot from failure at startups and other experiences to make myself a bit stronger also be able to support others now in that uh, venture. And actually, if you work hard enough, you think about the problems 
uh, as they arise and you can predict some of the problems, then you're more likely to make it a, a success. So I've learned both in clinical practice, both in leadership and from my startups about how you manage failure and how do you accept failure and, and you challenge yourself and move on. And uh, no, I appreciate that share a lot, Shafi. And there's a bit of reflection there. There's, there's thinking ahead. And you know, to what extent do you leverage mentors and, and people that can help in the process? I think it's important to have a good uh, team structure and have a mentorship where it's available. And when I'm, when I'm having difficulty or I'm having a problem, I have lots of mentors uh, in every part of my life. Uh, whether it's my clinical practice and I've come, I've been trained by very experienced senior eminent surgeons who I still will phone occasionally for advice. And I, I have no problems phoning up for advice. I think if you don't ask for advice, we don't ask for help support, I think that becomes a bit dangerous. And I'm humble enough to accept that I need that support sometimes. In business and my startups and education, I have many other mentors who, again, I would approach regularly just to make sure that I'm thinking in the right way, just to really more about signing my thoughts and to ensure that what I'm doing is holistic, it's rational. And, so, and also it's about being, I guess, more pragmatic about what you're going to be achieving and perhaps not overestimating your ability and to ensure that you're being sensible and actually realistic about what's achievable. And I think those are things that I think ground people to ensure that um, they're not getting carried away uh, with their work. That's impeccable. And so how about the other side of the coin, Shafi? What would you say is one of your most proud leadership experiences in, in healthcare? So one of my passions, uh, Sol, is the whole issue around global health. Mm-hmm. And I find myself really thinking about how do we help the world as a whole? We're more mm-hmm. connected. Um, if you look at this whole industry 4.0 or health 4.0, and now we're using this new term that I heard a few months ago at the World Government Summit, called Globalization 4.0. So Globalization mm-hmm. 4.0 is a new terminology for the World Economic Forum. What it implies okay. to me is that how does tech enable people around the globe to do better, healthcare and education? So a lot of my work, as you've seen, saw, is about scaling up education. I can teach thousands and tens of thousands of people using Google Glass or virtual reality or social media to share my knowledge. And that kind of has worked because people are connected. So I run something called the International Surgical Training Program at the College of Surgeons over the last three years. So I said to myself, how can we help support learning programs across the globe? And I've traveled. I've spent my life in the aeroplane for the last three or four years. I've been to about 35 countries, so working with universities, colleges, with governments, uh, health ministries, to really think about the challenge we have ahead. And the challenge is simple for me. The global issue around surgery is this. When the Lancet Commission produced its report about four years ago, it reported that 5 billion people, so do not have access to safe and affordable surgery. There's two-thirds of the population wow. can't access simple operations that you and I take for granted. Things like cesarean sections or uh, management of fractures or even appendicectomies. Simple things that will change people's lives and save lives. So my thought was how, okay, that's the problem. What are the solutions? Is it for me to teach people globally on scale using VR and AR or other reality platforms? But also it's about the face-to-face contact. So what I've done, I've actually made uh, connections with 56 institutions around the world. We've mm. set up a program of training. So we take the people from those countries who are highlighted and targeted to have some certain skill sets. It could be urology, it could be neurosurgery or plastic surgery. We bring them to the UK. We train them for a two-year period in that exact area they want to be trained in. So we push back into the communities in rural parts of the world so they can impact change for millions of people around the world. I've appointed now over 350 surgeons 
from over 50 countries around the world to be able to train to support the infrastructure in those countries. And what I've seen with that is that it's fostered this whole generation of new surgeons who are trained on a global scale and who consider themselves global citizens and also want to support their systems back home. And traveling around the world, I've seen different healthcare systems and how they work, taking the very best elements of that where I've learned things in my own practice and also to work with governments to invoke change around the world. So I think that global health work that I've been involved with has been real passion and it's helped me. And I've been to rural, and I've also not just worked in those countries, I've worked in war-torn zones, uh, Seoul. I've run a seven-year program in Gaza, uh, in Palestine, which wow. is a difficult place to get to, right? It's a war-torn yeah. zone. So when I went there back about uh, five or six years ago after the last war, I was asked to set up a program of sustainable training education across that region. I have been on seven missions now, set programs, and now we've finished phase one and left a sustainable solution of training education and making sure the, the, the specialists get support they need. And I'm just about to embark on phase two uh, in December. That's an ongoing program. How do we assist and support refugees, people in war-torn zones, using my technology and my skill sets in a way that we can help a population improve its uh, health resource and outcome. So that's been, I think, one of my greatest challenges. But also, I think I'm very happy with the outcome from those work I've done. Well, I think it's uh, it's brilliant. And the way that you've sort of thought about this on a global scale and and really the the thing that really impresses me is is this idea, right? You, you just assume, hey, you know what? School is this length. This is how long a physician trains for, and it just that's just the way it is. Why can't we challenge that? And like you have, Shafi, on a global scale to help these remote countries that that have problems with access to get there, and and uh, this idea of a virtual classroom to scale education is is just, uh, I think, a, a wonderful thing. And it sounds like it's already improving uh, patient lives out there. So are there doctors that have graduated from this already? Yes, of course. And I wow. keep in contact with a lot of them. And they've, nice. five, they've graduated, they're impacting. And yeah, and I keep in touch with them on, on various levels. And what they will do, of course, they'll improve. They will then re-educate people around them, improve the, the standards uh, in their local systems. And they're leaders, the innovators, they're leaders. They'll go back evoking change in their countries. And there's one uh, guy who I trained, who I brought to the UK, who went back to a rural part of Africa, where he was the only surgeon for about 1.5 million people wow. uh, in one specialty. You can imagine he needs certain skills to be able to help and support what he's going to do now, because uh, we teach them about leadership, about the whole concept about where they are in the role, not just about the surgery itself. He'll go back and hopefully share those experiences with his colleagues and raise the standards. So it's a trickle effect. I think it will have major effect in the long term. Hmm. And if you think about what that meant, let's just say 300 years ago, you know, you would have to get on a ship and take people and resources there to today where you, you could get on an airplane and, and you're working 15 years from now, Chef. Like you're just getting on it virtually. And I think that's outstanding and a great way to not just talk about it, but to to do what you believe is going to change the way that we practice medicine today. So I want to give you a lot of credit for that. That's very kind. Thank you, Saul. Thank you. So as we near the end of our interview today, Shafi, we got a, a prompt lightning round, followed by a book that you recommend to the listeners. You ready for that? Yeah, go for it. I'm ready, yes. <laughs> All right. What's the best way to improve healthcare outcomes? 
I think you have to look at yourself, every process, every bit of work that individually we do together as an organization and try to improve every process. And I always ask the question about who wants to be mediocre in life? If you want to be mediocre, then actually you'll accept no change. If you want to be an adopter and a changer and a big thinker, you'll challenge every process in front of you. And that's all that we can do together. That'll improve the outcomes. Wow. Love that. Nobody wants to be mediocre. If you're listening to Outcomes Rocket, you don't want to be mediocre. <laughs> Challenge <laughs> process, my friends. And what's the biggest mistake or pitfall to avoid? I think one is complacency and one is to lack humility. They're the two things I think in life that if you have humility and you're aware of the and be realistic about what's around you and you work hard, I think you'll be successful. I think those are the key things about human beings and, and healthcare professionals that keeps, um, keeps our sanity, I guess, above all else. Mm-hmm. Love that. And how do you stay relevant as an organization despite constant change? Uh, excellent question. I think what we need to do, we need to, I think we need to invest, as I said before, in humans, in people, mm-hmm. in your workforce. You need to invest in education. You need to invest in people coming to talk to you about what's going on. Make sure we have innovators, inventors at the forefront of your organization who want to change. And bringing the right people, have the right skill mix in that organization to ensure that you maintain relevance. They're pushing a boundary that what you're accepting today is not what you're accepting tomorrow. So you'll say, okay, what we're doing is okay. We're making profit. We're doing well and the business is working well. It's not enough. We, we will have our Kodak moment and we'll be out of business if we don't think about the future. So how do we maintain that relevance? How do we innovate and constant innovation in our organization to ensure we're at the forefront? If you do that, the money will come. You'll make good profit, of course, because you are the forefront of that change. Brilliant. I love that. And uh, what's an area of focus that drives everything in your work, Shafi? I think at my stage where I'm a bit older now, I guess, more mature uh, after working for 26 years in clinical practice, I think it's about impact. My, Mm. My life really is now about how do I leave impact for the world? What can I do to leave knowledge for many people around the world? How do I leave and my skills that I've acquired, which are useful for other people to acquire? And how do I leave an impact, whether it's just here in the UK or a global level? I really see myself more on a, on a global level and try to think about how do we improve the lives of many rather than the few? And how do we learn from experiences from other parts of the world and share those experiences? So I think that's the beauty of the world that we live in. There's lots of amazing stuff going out there, a lot of innovation happening in lots of parts of the world, places you can't even dream of. Actually, how do we bring that and share that as a resource? I, that's kind of what I, I, I want to do. Well, you're certainly doing just that uh, with, with really the work that you're taking on globally and, and even locally in England. I'd love to hear what your favorite book is. Yes, interesting question. So um, this might surprise a lot of people, but my favorite book is a book called A Suitable Boy huh. by Vikram Seth. Now, this is uh, one of the longest novels ever written. <laughs> and that, that 1993, right? yeah, it's 1,500 pages long, wow. and about half a million words. But what it is, essentially, it's a love story. It's oh. romance, but not quite that. It's based in um, India in 1951 during the partition from mm-hmm. British colonialism. And it's all about the, the whole environment around this, this couple's potential marriage. Hmm. But it describes war. It describes the futility of government. It describes the kind of process of human evolution. And it's much more than just a love story. And it's just beautifully written. And obviously it takes a long while to get through, but I'd recommend that to anybody who wants to spend a month or so engrossed in a beautiful book that really brings out all the emotions 
that, mm. uh, that define human beings. That's awesome. What a great recommendation. And uh, a first on the podcast after 400 plus interviews. <laughs> I'm so, glad I was different. I'm glad I was different. <laughs> <laughs> so folks, it is a human fabric story, love, and a, a wonderful recommendation by Dr. Ahmed here. We're here at the end. Uh, the time does fly when, when you have a good time and you know our guests offer lots of value like Shafi today. Leave us with the closing thought, Shafi, and the best place where the listeners could follow your work. So I'm uh, active uh, very much on social media. I have yeah, essentially a Facebook profile uh, that people are welcome to share. It's open access to the public. Instagram is at Virtual Surgeon, as is Snapchat at Virtual Surgeon, Twitter at Shafi Ahmed 5, and I do a lot on LinkedIn. And hopefully by the end of this year, I'll be writing a book around oh. this whole digital transformation and hopefully it'll be released by the end of the year. I'm working hard as we speak. And that's the book I've just been describing to you, how to change the mindset of people around the world who wow. don't understand digital transformation. I will make that book available to everybody so that they will understand the terminology and be able to have that conversation with the organizations with the right knowledge base. So that's what we're getting through at the moment. And I'll share it with you when it comes out in about three or four months time. That is brilliant. would love to have you back on to hear about that book, Shafi, because uh, I definitely want to uh, learn more about how you're doing the great things that you're doing. And I know the listeners do too. So with that, uh, just want to give you a big thanks, Shafi, and uh, looking forward to staying in touch. Great. Thanks. So a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Outcomes Rocket podcast. Be sure to visit us on the web at www.outcomesrocket.com for the show notes, resources, inspiration, and so much more.